Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. One of the unique features of uh, the Christmas holiday season, um, and Christmas itself, is that it is the only holiday, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, it is the only holiday that has its own genre of music. You ever notice that? No one sings, I'm dreaming of a warm 4th of July. You know, there's no, um, I'll be home for Labor Day. Um, <laughs> Christmas has this unique, um, unique set of music that, that's attributed, and so much of it is deeply set in Scripture. Um, and so we thought this holiday season, this Christmas season, that we would take a look at some of the, car- the carols um, that are familiar to us and look at them and their, and their scriptural significance, if you will. Which means, of course, that we are not going to do Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer or I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, okay? We're not going to do any of those, but we are going to look at some of those that have this deep, deep scriptural basis to them. And this morning, we're going to look at this one called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And... That scripture, um, that song comes from a very brief portion in scripture. It actually comes from two places in scripture. One from the prophet Isaiah, which is quoted um, for Matthew when he has found out um, that his fiance is pregnant and he knows that he is not the father. And one night an angel appears to him in a dream and comes to him with these words. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel. God with us. And as Matthew tells the story of the birth of Jesus, one of the things that he really does is he sets that, that context of Emmanuel into the history of Israel. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but that song is one of the few Christmas carols, I think it's the only Christmas carol that is in kind of a minor key because it is a, it is a song of hope. It is a song of longing. It is something that is, that is, that is sung looking forward to a fulfillment And when Matthew writes his gospel, he says, this is now the fulfillment. Jesus is the culmination and the climax of all that God has been doing in Israel's history up till now. And to make sure that we understand that, he starts his writing of his gospel with Jesus' family tree. If you want to turn there, back up a few pages, or actually a little bit further up on the page we read already. In Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what Matthew writes. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. I love that name. I should have known this when we had our boy. I just named my son Ram, Ram. Um, where was I? Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Maimon. Maimon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. <gasps> After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations on all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, you read that, and you probably think to yourself, that's an awful lot of names. That's really hard to pronounce. What's the point? I mean, if you're going to start a story, that is not the introduction that you would usually put into it's a story that you want to write story that you want to tell but matthew is setting this whole birth of the messiah in the context of all of israel's history you see if you read the old testament the the old testament is essentially the, the 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 story it's god's story it's god's story of creation and redemption and it's an ever unfolding story that finds its fulfillment and its culmination in Jesus. And Matthew wants us to understand that. And the point of all of this and the point of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is that Jesus is now God with us in a way that God has never been with us before. And when you go back and you trace through this genealogy and you look at the structure of this family tree, what you find is there's some real important things to understand about what it means when God says he is with us. And you see it played out in Israel's history And you begin to realize that the story that is Israel's history is pretty much the same as my own story. And Matthew wants us to understand that God is with us in every one of these things. So this morning we're going to kind of take this apart a little bit and look a little bit at this family tree of Jesus. And what is it that Matthew wants us to understand? And I think one of the first things he wants us to understand is that he wants us to know that through all the ups and downs of life, God is still with us. If you read through the Old Testament, you find there are lots of ups and downs in Israel's story. There are lots of successes and victories. There are lots of failures and defeats. There's all kinds of ups and downs all the way through. And by going through this family tree, what Matthew wants us to understand is God is with us in everything. He traces the family tree. In fact, he says it's basically it's broken up into three different sections. First of all, Israel as a family, starting with Father Abraham. And then the second third is the kingdom under David and then his descendants. And then the last third is Israel in exile. He says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. He begins the story with Father Abraham. And this is the beginning of God's redemptive work. That God comes to Abraham and he says these words. I will make unto you a great nation and I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is called a covenant. 
And this is the way that you find that God deals with Israel and, in fact, with all humanity throughout human history. He deals through something that is called covenant. And covenant needs some explanation because we don't, we don't I mean, maybe if you part of an HOA and you've got these C and C, C, C and R's, I think they're called, um, covenants, something in restrictions, you know, and you think covenant, what in the world does that have to do with the Bible? Well, covenant is something that is set forever. When God met with Abraham, he made a promise to him and he said, I will be your God and I will make of you a great nation and your people will be my people. And I will be their God. And you find throughout Israel's history this ever-expanding covenant that God makes. And what it is, is it's a solemn vow. It is a promise that cannot be broken. It is different from a contract. Very funny. In fact, I talk about this when I do premarital counseling with couples. Because a lot of people say, well, it's just a, it's just a piece of paper. It's just a contract. And it's not. Marriage is a covenant, and there's a difference between the two. In a contract, in a contract, we might come to an agreement, and we will draw up a contract that, that signifies our agreement. But in many cases, the whole reason we draw up the contract is for self-protection. If I hire you to do some work on my house, and we draw up a contract, and you say, you will do this and such on all my house, and when you do that, then I will pay you this. If you do the work and I don't pay you, you can come after me because we have a contract. If you don't do the work, I don't have to pay you because you didn't live up to your end of the bargain. We have a contract. And so even though it's something that we've come to an agreement on, in many ways, we're still in an adversarial position. Covenant is different. Covenant is, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. End of story. (laughs) I will keep my promise. Whether or not you live up to your end of the bargain, I will live up to mine. And that's what you see throughout Israel's history. First through Abraham, and Abraham made lots of mistakes along his journey. He's a great man of faith, but you read the story through the Old Testament, and he made all kinds of mistakes, and so did his descendants after him. And then you get to the second, third, and here's King David. And actually, God makes a covenant with David. He says to him, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. He made a covenant. He said, David, all, from, from your descendants, there will always be a king. And when Matthew is telling this family tree, he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises, all of those covenants. And what he's saying to you and me is that no matter what the circumstances of your life, God is with you. Through all the ups and downs, through all the twists and turns, through all the successes and the victories, through all of it, God has made a promise in a way like never before through Jesus that we would understand God is with you no matter what. God keeps his promises. You read through the Old Testament and you get to the end of it and you kind of think like the story isn't finished because it's about to reach its culmination. N.T. Wright writes it this way. He says, you're left with the sense that the story that is supposed to be going somewhere, but it hasn't gotten there yet. What's more, the story seems to have become badly stalled. It's like the story of a journey in which travelers have misread the map, lost their way, and become stuck in quicksand. (laughs) And that's kind of the story. But the other side of the story is that God continues to fulfill his promises. And when Matthew puts that family tree, that genealogy of Jesus up front. 
He wants us to know this is the final fulfillment of all of those promises that have been made along the way. That what has been promised is now being fulfilled. The song puts it this way. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel has come. God keeps his promises. I think something else about this idea of Emmanuel is that in spite of our failures and our shame, God is still with us. If you get into this family tree, there's a lot of things that you find. Um, and it's not the kind of genealogy that you would, use, would be used to finding in those days. Because generally when somebody wants to put out their, their pedigree and their family tree and they want people to think well of them, they hit all the highlights and they leave behind the family skeletons in the closet. And yet, as you read through this, you find specifically there are people who are mentioned in Jesus' lineages in his family tree that are the skeletons in the closet that you would hide. And yet, point, one of the points I think that Matthew is making is that, that this is the point of the story. That God, in Jesus, not only came for sinners, he came from sinners. And so you read through the story, and it's one of them mentioned is, is Tamar. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I'm not going to tell you that story this morning. You've got to read that one on your own, because it's not one I particularly want to tell in church. But it involves an incestuous relationship between Tamar and her father-in-law. Not the kind of thing you would put in your pedigree if you're trying to make a case for your purity and your family's tree. Yet Matthew specifically includes that story. In fact, he goes on, he talks about another one, David. Now, David was the great king. He was the first great king of Israel. It was under David that the the, the nation of Israel actually expanded. And so you would want to see David in your family tree because that's good stuff. Except that Matthew chooses one aspect in David's life, one moment in David's life, which is probably his greatest shame. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Anybody know who that unmentioned woman is? Bathsheba. Everybody knows the story of David and Bathsheba. (laughs) Not one of David's best moments. If you don't know the story, I'll give you a quick version of it. He is the king, and his army has gone off to war. And one night, he's out on his balcony, and he looks down, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. And he decides he has to have her. And so he has her brought to the palace and commits adultery with her. And then finds out that she's now pregnant. Now, that creates a problem because her husband, Uriah, has been out on the battlefield for the last couple of months. So he's got to do something to cover this thing up. So what he does is he sends to Joab the general. He says, send Uriah back. Give him a little R&R. He's been out on the battlefield a long time. Bring him back. Let him have some time. Brings him back to the palace and says, you've been doing such a good job. I just want you to have some great time. Go home and be with your wife. Only Uriah doesn't do that. He goes and instead spends the night on the front porch of the palace. And David finds out the next morning. He says, wait a minute. I brought you home so you could have some R&R. I want you to go be with your wife. And he says, well, how can I do that? When, when, when the, the, the army that I fight with is still living in tents, how can I go home and be warm and be with my wife? He says, I can't do it. He says, David says, well, stay another night. And he actually has him, and he gets him drunk. 
And he says, maybe this will get him to go home to him. But he still doesn't do it. Things are not looking good for David at this point. So he decides the only thing he can do is send him back to the battlefield. But he does with special instructions, sealed instructions to Joab, the general. And he says, put him up in the front of the battle. And then when the battle is the fiercest, draw back the troops. And of course, Uriah is killed. So now there's adultery. Now there's murder. Now you would think, if you were going to tell the exploits of David and include him in your family tree, you would talk about David and Goliath where he had this great faith and slew this great giant. You would, you would think that you would talk about his, his great battles where he won these great victories. You would think you would include in the story of the family tree how he built this great kingdom. You would think he would have all these other things, but Matthew deliberately chooses the most shameful thing in David's life because he wants us to know that whatever your guilt, whatever your failures, and whatever your shame... God's still with you. That he doesn't abandon us. And maybe you're this morning, maybe it's not David's story, but your story, if you went into it, there's stuff there that you're pretty ashamed of and you wouldn't want anybody else to find out about. And you make, it maybe even makes you wonder, could God possibly, possibly forgive me? And you read in David's story that God does. In fact, one of the Psalms of David, one of the great Psalms of David is where he pours out his heart when he realizes what he's... He's confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he realizes that he can't cover this up. And he goes to God, and he says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Purify me, if you can. Restore in me the joy of my salvation. I'm broken. I'm desperate. If I could do something to get your favor back and get you to love me and get you to forgive me, I would do that, but that's not going to be enough because sacrifices can't be enough. I need your mercy and I need your grace. And God forgives him. See, Emmanuel says God will not abandon you even in your worst moments. His forgiveness and his grace is always there. And his grace is greater than our shame. The song puts it this way. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. No matter what you've done, where you've been, God doesn't give up on you. And I think there's one more thing here. Because the last third of this genealogy is a series of names that nobody ever hears from again. And I think a point that Matthew's making is, though we may seem distant and silent at times, he's still with us. He's still with us. God's presence is not always evident. The last third, listen to the list of names. Abiad was the father of Eliakim, the father of Azor, the father of Zadok, the father of Achim, the father of Eliud, the father of Eleazar, the father of Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph. And if you read through that, you realize nowhere do you know their story. These are pretty much anonymous people. The only thing we have, this is the only place they're mentioned in all of Scripture, and all we have is their names. And it comes from a time in Israel's darkest history where they are overtaken by, the, by Babylon and then by Assyria. The, the, the nation is totally destroyed. They are carried off into exile for 70 years. And the last prophet 
was 400 years before the coming of Jesus. There is a 400-year gap where there is no prophetic word, no word from God, no sense of God's presence. God seems distant and like he's given up. And yet, that third of the story is also included in the family tree. I think Matthew wants us to understand, there will be times when God seems distant. There will be times in your life when God seems silent. But he's still with you. He's still with you. 400 years. It just seems like everything's been put, all of human history, all of Israel's history, put on hold. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate being on hold. <laughs> I hate to wait. I hate, I, you know, I, I, if I'm in a, in, a, in a store or something, I look for the shortest line. And I try to get, and when I do, when I look at the lines, I count the number of items in people's carts. Because this might be a shorter line, but if it's a big cart, that's not a good bet, okay? I deliberately signed up for fast track because I hate stopping. I just want to drive right through. In fact, I had to this, this uh, last week. I had to renew our fast track account because the card that it was attached to was expiring. The date had expired. And so I had to go. And so I was going to change my fast track because I hate to wait. So I went and sure enough, I couldn't do online. It was just a mess. So I thought, I'm just going to call them. I'm going to call and figure this whole thing out. So I called them up um, on hold, waiting for the music to play for about 10 minutes. Finally got to talk to a real person. And I said, you know, I'd like to change my fast track. I'm having trouble, difficult, difficulty doing it online. Uh, could you help me with this? And he said, sure, I, we can do that. Um, give me the information. So I gave the information. What card was it under? What's the new card? What's the new expiration date? He says, okay, let me check. Let me put you on hold again. 15 minutes, I am on hold. I know this because I timed it. <laughs> And after 15 minutes of being on hold, which was added to the first 10 minutes before I got to talk to a real person, finally the person comes back online and says, you know, our system seems to be down. Could you call back tomorrow? Now that's just a minor inconvenience. But I hate waiting. I hate being on hold. There are times in your life where it feels like you are on hold, and it's not for just 15 minutes or 20 minutes or a half an hour or even sometimes for a day. And in those moments when life seems on hold and God seems silent, you begin to wonder, is he really there? It's the waiting of a young couple hoping to get pregnant with their first child and wondering, will they ever have a child? Or the waiting of a single person wanting to be married and find a life partner. And no one seems to be interested. Or the waiting when you're hoping to find out the results of a biopsy. Or the waiting when you've been out of a job and your support has run out and you're wondering, will I ever work again? See, compared to that, being on hold is a minor inconvenience. (laughs) But there are times, those deep times of waiting, that you begin to wonder, is God there? Does he care? Does he know? And here's what I found in my own life. God does some of his best work in silence. 
And you don't recognize it. In fact, in the middle of that time, you wonder. But it's only in retrospect that you look back and you realize God was at work in the background all along. And I think that's one of the things that, that Matthew wants us to understand is that even though there were 400 years of silence in Israel's history, God was still working. And God was bringing about something that would be the ultimate fulfillment of all that he had promised. God with us. And if you're here this morning and you're going through one of those ups or down times, if you were here this morning and it feels like what you've done is so shameful and you carry that shame and you wonder, could God possibly forgive you or God possibly be interested in loving you? Or you're in a holding time and it's been an extended holding time and you're wondering, does God really care about what's going on? The promise and the fulfillment in Jesus is, yes, he is there. He is with you. And he will be with you. No matter what. The promise, one of the last words given to the prophet Isaiah. Hundreds of years before this fulfillment. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And its root in, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Saying, it looks like everything's been cut down. The tree is dead. It's been chopped down. But there's a branch. When, when our kids were younger, we used to go every year, cut our own Christmas tree down. And one of the things they told us when we went and cut our Christmas tree down is, leave a row of branches. And we went to the same place year after year after year. And after a number of years, we began to realize what happened was, where that trunk had been cut down and just that one row of branches, one of those branches actually became a new trunk. And a whole new tree had grown up. And you could tell because when you got to the bottom to cut it, there was this little hitch in the trunk. And what had been cut down and thought to be dead had now sprung up with new life. And that's the promise. God with us. God with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.